Planetary Radio is Public Radio's only weekly series about space exploration. I'm Matt Kaplan, and I hope you'll join me as we explore Mars, look for life in the universe, and fly through the rings of Saturn. We'll talk with the men and women, scientists and dreamers who are guiding us to a future beyond Earth. And don't forget to enter our weekly space trivia contest. That's Planetary Radio, Mondays at 5.30 p.m., right here on KUCI. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer with your host, Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have heard her on the radio or seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, lots of other shows. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI slash Privacy Piracy. Evening, Mari. Good evening. So, what's your show tonight? Well, we have a great show. You know, it's wonderful to speak to somebody who's a real security expert, and we have one of those with us right now, and you're going to love his great accent as well. We've had some fun accents recently. All right, so let me tell you a little bit about our cybercrime expert, Neil O'Farrell. Neil O'Farrell is the founder of the security training firm My Security Plan. He's a nationally recognized expert on cybercrime, and he's one of the world's top 20 security experts. Neil was the driving force behind a number of national security awareness initiatives, including the nation's first cybersecurity city, a unique experiment to raise the security awareness of an entire city, as well as the nation's first cybersecurity day. Neil's been developing security solutions since the early 80s. And in the late 1980s, he installed the first two-factor authentication system on the Irish banking networks. It's a technology which is now in the forefront of this battle against identity theft, and especially phishing, which we're going to talk about. In the early 1990s, he developed a biometrics-based access control system for Britain's first telephone banking service. He is editor for The Zone, which is the monthly security newsletter published by Zone Alarm maker Zone Alarms in San Francisco. Neil was responsible for teaching security to more than 3 million computer users in 120 countries. Over his 25-year security career, Neil has worked as a security consultant and advisor to financial organizations, the government, military, Fortune 500 firms around the world, and he's even taught security awareness awareness to employees from a wide variety of organizations, including Toyota, Chevron, Merrill Lynch, Cost Plus World Market, and others. He's currently involved in the development of a national standard to build greater information security awareness in the workplace. He also is involved in an initiative to teach the nation's smaller businesses how to protect themselves and their customers from the impact of cybercrime and identity theft. You can find out a lot more about what they do at mysecurityplan.com, but I want to tell you I was on my anti-phishing working group emails and I kept seeing all sorts of great information that Neil was sharing with the group, and so I invited him to be on. So welcome, Neil. It's great to have you with us tonight. Thanks, Mary. It's uh, it's great to be here, and I appreciate the invitation and the, uh, the glowing intro. Oh, great. So let, let's find out a little bit. I wanted to find out some more about the intro. So are you from Ireland? I am. Born, bred, and buttered. 
Well, um, <laughs> and you know what? Lloyd is Irish, so you'll get a kick Congratulations. Out. Yeah, we, we've never Good been choice. there, but we would love to go there. I hear it's absolutely gorgeous. It's not a bad place. Yes. So you established the first two-factor authentication system on the Irish banking networks. So yes. why don't you explain that? I know what you what you mean, what we mean by authentication, but let's explain to our audience what that means and and how that's used. Sure. Uh, um, I, I I suppose if you're uh, if you bank with any of them, the the larger banks these days, or even the larger credit unions, or you use PayPal or eBay, you're probably already using some kind of two-factor authentication. It's a, it's a, 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 a kind of a complicated term for something that's very simple. It simply means that in order to identify yourself, you have to have two pieces of information, and it's typically something that you know, which for the last 20 years has been essentially your password. Uh, but because passwords are becoming so um, difficult to manage as a security tool because people write them down or they, they make them too easily or too easy to guess or they, they don't change them often enough, um, financial institutions particularly are introducing a second factor, which is typically something that you have like a, a, a key ring fob device uh, that will generate a number that will match your password uh, uh, or in the case of some of the banks, uh, it may be that little image that you're asked now to select and it pops up when you log on to your your, your online bank account, and it's a way of authenticating, making sure that uh, if you don't recognize the image, for example, you may be on a phishing website, uh, or you may be trying to log into someone else's bank account. And uh, uh, in the, the late 1980s, well, in the early 80s, I've been doing a lot of work with the Irish banks, and uh, one particular bank, I think they're now the largest bank in Ireland, asked me if, I've ever heard, if I'd heard of this two-factor authentication, and I had, and uh, one thing led to another, and I believe they were one of the first banks in Europe to actually introduce these, uh, at the time, they were little uh, calculator-sized devices that you picked out of your pocket, you entered in your password, it generated a number. Your uh, bank, bank's computer, uh, had the same information. If the numbers matched, you were who you said you were, and you got access to your account. Right. And I noticed that in the 1990s, you established a biometrics-based access in... in um, which is another factor. So the biometrics, what was it, a fingerprint, or what was it that you used in the, in the British banks? It was voice. It was what was oh, called voice verification, which was part of the family of voice uh, recognition. Uh, we'd been doing a lot of work in voice encryption, so we, we'd come to understand uh, how the human voice could be um, digitized, stored, and um, really treated almost like a data file, which was pretty new in those days. And uh, the device we had was for... Um, Britain's first online banking, or telephone banking. The internet obviously didn't exist at the time. Right. Um, and it was a very, it was a very simple system. Uh, customers would enroll in the system by calling up a number, repeating a sequence of ten numbers. I think it was ten times. So the enrollment took about thirty or forty seconds, and uh, the computer uh, took an average or a a a a level, if you like, of, of the user's voice speaking particular numbers. And then every time after that you were required to log in, you'd present your password. The computer would uh, pick up the voice file connected to that password. So it wasn't trying to recognize your voice. It was simply trying to verify, well, the person who has this password should have a voice that sounds like this. Let's try him. Hmm, that's uh, interesting. It worked very well, but the, uh, it, 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 I don't think it was ever implemented because consumers just didn't like the extra 30 seconds it took. Interesting. <laughs> of course, maybe now with so much identity theft also in England, maybe they would feel differently. I think at that time they weren't that familiar with identity theft. And, of course, in England and Europe it was different the way they issued credit cards and credit. You'd go to your own bank, they'd know you. But, you know, in our country we've had identity theft much more of an epidemic um, sooner than Europe because of the fact that there's no face-to-face -face contact and you're not getting your credit card from your own bank, you're going online. So, um, But I, I'm wondering, what if you have a cold or something? Your voice still, it, it, would the algorithm still be correct, or how would that work? It was, it was, it was very robust at a very low level of, um, um, I believe they were called uh, false negatives, where they turned you down because... Although you were the right person, you had the right password, they couldn't understand your voice. You're talking in, in fractions of a percent, so uh, uh, users were very rarely rejected by it. It was able to accommodate things like a cold, like a sore throat. What it seemed to have difficulty with was background noise. Uh, the assumption was most users would be accessing from their home, so there wouldn't be a lot of background noise. But if they were calling from a, uh, um, 
a telephone kiosk in the street, for example, where there was background traffic. Um, that tended to throw the system out. But again, it was a very low, uh, a very low rate. I think it was a tenth of a percent was the was the reject rate at that time. So, what are you suggesting for now for 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 those of us who use the in- internet and in terms of two or three factor authentication, or are you suggesting biometrics like a fingerprint or a device that we hook into our computer? What are, what are you suggesting that we do to make sure that we are authenticated because we have so much identity theft online? Yeah, it's, it, it's hard to identify any one particular solution that's going to work because every time we come up with a new solution, either, either some very bright university researchers um, come up with a, a hem, wait now, that doesn't work. Or uh, the bad guys crack it, they find a way to get around it. We've already found with this two-factor authentication that uh, it is vulnerable to quite an array of attacks. Um, I, I think it's, it's the same way security has always been. It's um, never drop your guard, uh, always be vigilant, and use lots of different security. Don't rely on one particular type of security. I mean, that's the whole logic behind this two-factor authentication. Uh, it's trying to get users away from relying simply on one thing, which is a password, which is easy to break, uh, and add in an, an additional layer of security. But um, there is no one panacea. I think uh, biometrics, or uh, fingerprint biometrics, have a certain amount of, of benefit. <clears throat> but unfortunately, um, you know, assume that uh, you have millions of people have all their fingerprint records in one database or multiple databases, the, d- the database is hacked. Uh, unlike an authentication token or a password, you can reissue new passwords. You can't issue, reissue new fingers. Yes. Um, so there's, there are certain complications. It's, I mean, obviously there are workarounds, but uh, um, I think voice is, is another area that hasn't been fully explored. I think a Canadian companies recently developed some very good uh, facial recognition that uses your own webcam to uh, recognize your face as you log on to your computer. Uh, so I, I think it's like the, Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, a little bit like that. It's, it's getting very yes. high-tech, although so many of the crimes are still so low-tech. It's sometimes, it's sometimes overkill. But I think yes. you're just going to have to think about security as in life is just multiple layers. Right. You know, I like the idea of something you have and something you know. And, and I like it when there is a, for me, who has been a victim of identity theft and literally deals with thousands of victims of identity theft, I, I like it when I'm asked, what was your first elementary school teacher's name? You know, when I'm trying to get into a, a site that they know me and they want to make sure it's me for, for my bank. So if they ask me two or three questions that I've already agreed upon ahead of time, I'm, I'm feeling safer that way because that's something that a fraudster they can easily break my code of my password and unless uh, they can use spyware to find out what the answer to my questions are um how good is that am i am i being deceived that it's really uh not so helpful to have those uh, specific questions no i i i think it's I, I think it's good to an extent i mean the old the old trick of uh, uh giving your mother's maiden name or the or, or the Oh, not that one. Yeah, everybody knows that one, yeah. Yeah, the the, the Internet is is, is such an information detective. Uh, That information is very, very easy to to discover. I I think certainly making the questions more complicated complicated and personal certainly does help. But it it goes back to a conversation I had almost 15 years apart with with bankers when we talked about this authentication system we installed in in, in Great Britain. you, were, you, you, you raised the issue, well, identity theft wasn't a problem back then, and it wasn't, and I didn't understand why they wanted this system. And the answer was marketing. We simply want to get one step ahead of our competitors by showing that your money is safer with us. I had the same conversation a couple of months ago with someone at a major bank when I was bringing up the issue of, uh, of authentication, these uh, side key devices and the images. And it, it just raised, it, it brings up the point that you, you just made. It's kind of an angle that a lot of consumers don't think about that if you create something personal on the website, if that's the first thing that they see, they automatically and instinctively feel that there's more of a personal connection with that bank. If the first thing the bank says to you is, good morning, what's your, 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 the, the, the name of your, your, your first teacher? You automatically it conjures up a positive image, I would hope, yeah. um, and makes an immediate personal connection with a financial organization. So I think the banks have been very clever in saying it's part security, 
But what we don't want to tell you is that we're building this personal relationship with you, that you feel that uh, uh, you belong here and we know something personal about you that the bad guys don't. Yes, and, and hopefully that's right, although some people are becoming much more privacy conscious and feel very invaded that people want to know so much about you. I think if you volunteer it, like what kind of question do you want to have that will help us to know you, I think that's different. And and especially if they, you know, if they give their mother's maiden name, that's on your birth certificate. That's available on the Internet. So yeah. that's not a good one. But like you said, if you said, okay, what was your second pet's name? You know, and that is probably going to be easier to um, to identify you as, as really the authentic person. I don't think my fraudster would have known my second pet's name. Probably not, unless, no. it, unless it's your, your husband. Right. <laughs> of course, the, the problem that I noticed, at least with some banks, is they ask you something like, how much, was, how much did you pay on your last American Express bill? And if you're not home and you don't remember exactly how much it was, you can't get in. Sure. So I prefer something that goes way back in history that you've established as, a, um, as an authentication question that goes back to, like, you know, something like, where did you live in such and such a year or something? You know, that could be found on the Internet, but that's a lot of work. That's a lot of work. I, I, I think it's like so much in security. It has to be a compromise. It has to be something that stands out so much that you will remember it, but not stand out so much that it may be in some database someplace or some, some online record where it's, it's easy for someone else to, to, to grab it, find it, or guess it. Yes. What was the initiative of the cybersecurity city? What city was that? Tell me about That sounded interesting. Yeah, it, was, it, it really was an eye-opener. It was uh, Walnut Creek in uh, San Francisco East Bay. They were the um, probably best known for the the, um, the birth of PeopleSoft. Um, they were also the base for the the Sims. Uh, the, You're going to uh, have to explain to my audience what those are in case they don't know. I know for you it's like the back of your hand, and I know what PeopleSoft is, but I, I'm not sure if the people driving by really are familiar. Could you explain what those were? Well, Sims is is is, is a I, I'm not a, I'm not a, a Sims aficionado. I've never I've never played it, but Sims is, is like a virtual community where you create virtual versions of yourself and you interact with other vir- virtual people and in virtual environments and really live vicariously to these characters and create relationships, go to work. It's, it's, a, it's a very odd kind of, of game, but it's, a, it's incredibly popular. Yeah, I've been reading about it. I haven't been involved in it, but it's, it's really a pseudo-life. It is. I mean, it's, 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 if anyone ever tells you to get a life, this is probably the only place you can literally do it. You can get many of them, but unfortunately, you know, you have to turn off the computer at some point to come back to your real life. Oh, I know. That's pretty scary. I mean, especially for young kids who are doing this, they just totally, you know, drop out of life, and that's it. Yeah. They don't need drugs. They just use the computer. Yeah, for the for the unpopular kid, it's a great way to invent a thousand new friends. <laughs> but it's, it, it does have its risks, I'm sure. Right, right. Okay, so that's it. And then the PeopleSoft. Yeah, PeopleSoft are a major software company. I believe they're 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 now, they're now part of Oracle, part of a, uh, um, a takeover some time ago. They were a major software company, HR management software, and uh, amongst other things. And um, they they're I, I, they're certainly in the billions of dollars in revenue and in 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 in, um, in value. And uh, they they were they were born in the city of Walnut Creek. It's one of its its great claims to fame. Uh, until. At uh, 2002, when the city said, you know, we really want to do something about protecting our citizens against cybercrime, anybody got any ideas? And uh, it, uh, um, I was asked about it. I suggested uh, a cybersecurity day, which uh, turned out to be a one-day event that attracted about 1,200 small business owners. We had some. Um, we had the co-founder of Napster was a, was a guest speaker. We had some very well-known hackers. Mm. And, and the city was so captivated by the response. They'd never seen any kind of event in the city that created such a buzz. And it was the same time that uh, uh, President Bush had come to the Bay Area to launch his uh, national strategy to secure cyberspace. I believe it was Stanford uh, that he launched it. So the city said, okay, well, we're going to respond. And what we're going to do is devote an entire year to making our city more secure. And uh, So what kinds of things did they do, Neil? Well, first of all, we brought together uh, a huge team of individuals and organizations that could play a part. We, uh, it was head, headed by the Chamber of Commerce, 
Uh, we brought in the small business community, the, the city leadership, the mayor. Uh, we brought in the uh, police department. They were the first, I believe, in the nation that had every single member trained in identity theft awareness. Um, it, we brought in the schools. Uh, we brought in some great sponsors who funded it, people like Microsoft, uh, McAfee, SBC, Cisco. And we created a variety of programs tailored for each audience and for their their needs and their availability. We had uh, Tuesday morning breakfast security briefings for the small business community. We had different experts in every Tuesday morning for an hour to an hour and a half and uh, addressed different security topics. We, uh, as I said, trained the entire police department in security. We worked with the city government to protect their computers. Uh, we gave away free educational CDs and DVDs to, I think, 32,000 homes in the city. Great. Um, and it, it worked very well. Um, the idea was really to create a, a, a model that could be then replicated by other cities and communities, that if we could figure out how to get um, the community more interested in security, uh, we could essentially pack, pack and, and, and package and ship that model to any community uh, across the country. And the, the idea was, was good, and we had a lot of success in it, but we had a real trouble getting anybody beside the business community to take it seriously. And it was probably one of the biggest eye-openers. I'll just give you an example, a quick example of one of the, the things that we did that really uh, opened everybody's eyes. Uh, right at the time we, were, we launched this, there was a lot of focus on identity theft and on child predators. There were a number of uh, very disturbing cases in the media at the time. So we decided we'd run a series of town hall meetings uh, focusing on just those two issues, assuming that parents in the community would, would, would be interested and would want to learn more. We brought in um, a, team, a team from the FBI, the uh, child protection uh, specialist in Oakland and San Francisco. We had, as one of our speakers, the advisor to President Clinton on Y2K. We had really some uh, top-tier talent came into the city free of charge. We worked with all the local schools, a dozen local schools. We picked the, uh, the place, the time. Uh, the auditorium that we thought would suit everybody. We uh, sent invitations out to, I think it was 12,000 parents. We had the mayor involved. We had the city leadership involved. We had the local media got word out. We were on the San Francisco Chronicle. We were on CBS News. And on the night, out of 12,000 people invited, I believe 25 parents showed up in uh. an, an auditorium of 400. Oh, no. Yeah, it, was, it really was an eye-opener, and it, it reinforced... For me, something that I've seen in, in the, over the 25 years that I've been doing this, apathy is still the biggest challenge that we face in security, is getting people to care enough to do something for themselves. I think it's partly that they don't understand. They don't understand their vulnerability. Once they understand their vulnerability, they seem to be more interested in coming to events like that. I, I, I think that's that, that's that's... That a certain amount of truth. I, th I think, yeah, I think maybe your case is, is a great example. It, it took you being a victim before you realized how much you have to do to protect yourself. Exactly. Unfortunately, I mean, it'll certainly it'll certainly make my my job much more lucrative, and I can retire maybe to that island much quicker <laughs> if everyone becomes a victim before they seek our help. Well, we had what last year. Now they're saying 15 million new victims. Yeah, and so, I mean, it's grown and grown. I was a victim back in 1996. That's, that's when I ended up going to Washington and testifying in Congress and speaking at the White House. And so that was 1999 that I spoke at the White House. And then Clinton really, you know, had signed some legislation at that time. So, you know, lots of things have, have happened since then. And I think people are more concerned and more willing to listen because they feel more vulnerable. Well, I, I think certainly in identity theft, one of the good things to come out of identity theft is that it, it really raised secu security awareness. For years, we were trying to counsel people on protecting against viruses, on uh, updating their computers, their, uh, their browsers, on uh, being more careful where they surfed. And it, it just wasn't getting through. People didn't care. Along came identity theft, and uh, one of the unique, the many terrible unique um, um, components of identity theft is almost everybody knows of a victim. Yes. So suddenly it became a, a crime that everyone was touched by, either directly or indirectly. So, the, And that obviously fueled the, the, the media attention, and uh, the media really has not been quiet about identity theft almost since 2000, 2001. So the good thing about identity theft, it really has raised awareness about the issue, but we're still missing that magic bullet to get people to go over the edge and, uh, 
make that commitment, uh, as I say, you know, uh, to take your personal security planning as important as your personal financial planning. It's, exactly. Uh, and and ha- under, now they're understanding the ramifications, but I, I think they feel overwhelmed. I want to introduce you again. We are speaking with Neil Fer- O'Farrell, who happens to be one of the top 20 security experts in the world, and he is, a, he is the CEO of My Security Plan, and you can go to mysecurityplan.com and learn more about it. And we're talking about cybersecurity. So where are we in the fight against cybercrime anyway? Well, we're not <laughs> in a good place. Uh, there are certainly lots of great improvements. Um, I think we're seeing a lot of new legislation, uh, and, and typically it, it, it's been driven by security incidents rather than by than smart and intelligent moves. Um, we're seeing a lot of advance, advancements in new technologies. We're seeing uh, the financial industry um, protect consumers a lot better, whether it's new technologies or uh, zero liability, so that consumers don't hurt quite as much. But certainly we seem to be losing the battle uh, overall. We're, we're losing more data than we ever did. Um, we're spending more money on security than we ever did, and typically uh, consumers end up paying for that in some way or another. Uh, we seem to be losing as much money, although we're not quite losing the consumers not feeling the pain directly, which is, I think, contributing, contributing Fi- financially, to Financially, for some, most people, they're not, unless they're victims of criminal identity theft or some other non-credit identity theft. They're not feeling, but they're still overwhelmed with hundreds of hours of cleaning up the mess. So it may not be they're not feeling the pain of the finances outside of their, you know, uh, out of their pocketbook, but I think they are still feeling, from what I'm experiencing with them calling me and writing me, that they are still experiencing the overwhelming, uh, time-consuming aspect because you've got all these databases, and all these databases are sharing with other databases, and you can't get rid of this data, and it's all over the place. So to try and clean up the mess of someone saying that um, you're, you know, you're, not paying your bills or you're a malingerer or you're a criminal or you don't pay your hospital bills or you're collecting on workers' comp that you shouldn't. You know, that's not an easy thing, Neil. No, I, I think zero liability really was one of those great two-edged swords. It, it really uh, gave consumers a lot more confidence that uh, they can continue to shop online, continue to use their credit cards, and obviously it protected the financial industry. But uh, it's come to be interpreted as uh, Zero, li- uh, zero responsibility, zero, zero risk, zero pain. And you're absolutely right. I mean, depending on which study you read, you know, uh, financially out-of-pocket expenses are not as great as they used to be. But that's not where the pain comes from. They, right. The stories that I'm getting are probably exactly the same ones that you're yes. getting. You're getting people's lives and credit histories absolutely ruined. Right. You're getting people with living with, for years with unbelievable stress, with uh, uh, debt collectors knocking on their doors, threatening them inability to get new credit, their credit card rates going up. It's it's a kind of pain. I would far prefer to lose 5000 to $10,000 uh, in, in, in straight cash and identity theft if I knew that was going to be the end of it. Yes, yes. Well, you know, I think one of the things that we're seeing is that I tell everybody, and I'm, I, you know, as you mentioned, if it's just credit card fraud from your own credit card, that is easy. You know, you, you can dispute it. You get the credit card statement. You say, this isn't mine. If there's more than one thing on there, you cancel the card. You get a new card. You're not, it is zero liability. But it isn't really zero liability. If somebody gets your checks and gets the money out of your account, that's not zero liability. It's not zero liability. If somebody steals your name and uses your name to commit crimes, or to uh, get a driver's license, or to, to get a job and pretend to be a legal citizen. You know, that's not zero liability. So it's only zero liability, really, when it's using your own credit card. And then you're safe. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, zero liability is one of those things that it, it, it all depends on how the bank feels or the credit card company feels on the day. Uh, I mean, there's a case of that individual, I believe he's in Florida, who... Uh, um, decides to make the plunge into online banking, only to wake up one morning and find that $70,000 had been cleared out of his account. Yes. It turns out it was a zombie planted on his computer that grabbed his password and got access to his account. Let's talk uh, about what's a zombie. Would you explain that to my audience? A zombie is, is, is essentially a piece of code that uh, it, it, it falls, I guess, under the, the, uh, 
the, 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 the umbrella of malware like a computer virus or spyware or Trojan. And it essentially, um, uh, I, I beg your pardon, it wasn't a zombie in this case, it was a keylogger. I, I misspoke, but they're all in the same family. Was it a software keylogger or a hardware keylogger? It was a software. It was a small piece of code that he had downloaded, he believed, through a website that he had visited, and he hadn't updated either his browser or his, his antivirus software. And this software basically sat in his computer watching his keystrokes, oh. waiting for him to log into this brand-new bank account and uh, got his ID and his password, mm. cleaned out his account, shift, shifted the funds to uh, an Eastern European country. And, of course, when he went to the bank and said, okay, tell me all about this zero liability that protects yes. me. And the <laughs> bank simply said, well, your computer, your mistake, uh, we're not, there's no zero liability. And to this oh, day, he's no. still fighting uh, for that, so in zero liability, don't use it as a, a safety net. If it's fifty bucks or a hundred bucks, perhaps the bank might waive it or the credit card. If it's going to hurt the bank financially, you really do have a tough fight yes, on top we... of all the other fights you'll be fighting. When you know some some guy in Belarus or even down the street decides to buy your use your credit card to uh, furnish his home or re-trick his Harley. You know, we are in the Wild West. You know, the, the Internet is so wonderful in terms of research. It has such benefits, and it has such dark darkness, doesn't it? It is It is pretty terrifying to think what can happen. I, I got a call recently from a woman, that, a young woman, who went out, who, you know, uploaded her information to get a job, you know, on monster.com, and... Um, you know, she was hooked. Well, that was kind of almost like fishing, you know, but someone offered her a job and she gave information that she shouldn't have given. And of course, then everything was gone, you know. And, and what do you do? Is it her fault? Is, is it her fault? The bank thinks it's her fault. I think we put a lot of responsibility on consumers who are, cannot keep up with the technology. I mean, you are one of the top 20 experts in security in the world. And those of us who aren't that and who have, don't do security or computers for a living, it's, it's really just a challenge. Now, I know, because I have a computer consultant, and I know to do my Norton every night. I know to do my spyware and my adware and all that stuff. But even that, you know, it's not an easy thing for consumers to do. Why should consumers be the ones who have to keep trying to take care of themselves? Don't you think it should be in the hands of the technologists? It, it should be to some extent. I mean, I really do pity the 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 the, the, the average of the t- typical consumer these days. A couple of years ago, I wouldn't have so much because it was relatively easy to protect yourself. But um, profit has come into cybercrime and identity theft in a way that it never was before, and that has attracted uh, real professionals with a lot of money to take away your money, uh, and they're they're teaming up. We're seeing uh, uh, organized crime team teaming up with spammers, teaming up with virus authors. Um, uh, groups of uh, uh, even college-age kids developing uh, bot networks and renting those out, you know, almost, you know, rent, rent an attack squadron. So tell uh, us about how that works. I, what is a bot network that would, um, you know, help me understand what you mean by that? A, a, a bot, again, comes under that family of computer viruses. It's a piece of code that some way finds its way onto your computer. And that can simply be because uh, uh, you downloaded it uh, in an email attachment, uh, you clicked on uh, a, uh, a link in an email, you uh, visited a website and moused over an image where the code was hidden, uh, or you simply didn't update your browser or your Firefox or your Internet Explorer, and uh, uh, the attacker managed to uh, get this code on your, to your computer. And essentially, it, it, it turns, it comes back to this zombie idea I talked about before. It, it puts the control of the computer under the attacker. Yes. Um, and uh, if you put a, no, a, a sufficient number of these computers under the control of the one hacker, it can be a couple of thousand, or in a case in, in Holland recently, over a million computers, you can wreak havoc with that network of, of computers. These, they call them zombies because they will do anything the, the minder uh, or the bot master requests or instructs of them with absolutely no regard for what the owner of the computer wants. And uh, it used to be that uh, they would... Um, for example, launch denial of service attacks on networks, and this is simply barraging a, a website. For example, if you wanted to close down a like website, like the federal government, like the FBI or the Secret Service or something like that. Exactly, or it could be a, a, a large commerce site or even a political website. You or or Microsoft or something. Yes, exactly. And I think just about everyone has been a victim of this, or every major organization has been a victim to some extent. 
And you'd simply have so many computers pretending or trying to log on or send requests that the, uh, the service and the networks jam up and the legitimate customers can't get access, transactions come to a halt or they, sit, or, or, or they slow down. And that's what they used to do in the old days. And it was a lot of fun for the creators, and they would brag on, on, uh, in chat rooms about how they did it, and usually they turned themselves in by their own stupidity. Right, because they're but, so proud of themselves. Yeah, the, the only gain was fame. And uh, in order to be famous, you have to identify yourself, which is a bit silly. Mm. Uh, so most of them got caught. But what we're seeing now are... Um, creators of these um, bot networks, and they're called, crazily enough, bot herders. <laughs> the names uh, that we're going to have to... In fact, Lloyd, the, the other day, downloaded, um, uh, what, 10 pages of, of just what you can say to... What did you say, Lloyd? Texting. Uh, yeah, just to do uh, text messages. <laughs> you know, we had to translate what these are. I mean, there's so there's a whole new vocabulary that we can't even keep up with. It, it, yeah, it's crazy, and that's... <laughs> That goes, that goes back to the difficulty consumers have. Yes. You're just getting them used to one idea, and then there's a completely new term. I mean, you know, I was asking myself a few years ago, is, is spyware a virus? Is it a Trojan? And what's a keylogger? Where does that, do I need keylogging software? Uh, it, it's, if we're confused, I, mean, I, I really do sympathize for consumers who are also confused, and they're told to protect themselves, and they, they're, they're less saying, well, how, what, against? Uh, yes, uh, and and you know, this is what scares me when you were talking about how the bank wouldn't would tell the gentleman from Florida that, you know, they're not going to give him back his seventy thousand dollars because it's his fault. But you know, I I think that putting the burden on the consumer and saying, well, you're not running your spy spyware and you're not running your Norton and you're not running these. Yes, you have to have some, um, you know, some higher consciousness about privacy and, and learning these programs if you're going to have a computer. But there is such a push to have a computer, to use email, to do all these things. And it is literally, I think, impossible to protect yourself when you're talking about, I mean, it's. I know people, I tell people, never click on, you know, a link in a, in a you know, in a uh, email that you get. But sometimes you get something from a friend and you think it's really going to be them. And it might be one of these bot masters. Am I correct? Absolutely. I mean, you, it's, you can spoof anything on the Internet, uh, including emails, email addresses, uh, websites. I mean, we've seen that with phishing schemes. Um, it's, 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 I don't think it's, any lo- it's, it's fair any longer to tell the consumer, you must be aware enough to be able to defeat or and even recognize these threats all the time. I think if you if you really want to maintain both consumer confidence in in the internet and in 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 all the commercial aspects of the internet, and also maintain consumer confidence in your company, whether it's a bank, an online retailer, or whatever, you really have to bite that bullet and say if you lose, ninety nine percent of the time we will cover it. Yes, uh, because. What you end up covering in the end is only a fraction of what you lose if consumers are so frightened that, uh, I mean, you know, the, the worst story for a, 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 the credit card in the industry is the advice we're giving out is have one credit card. The credit card industry doesn't want to hear that. Who's yes. it going to be? Or use one credit card on the Internet and the rest of the credit cards in, in the real world, one in the virtual world and one in the real world. Although, you know, to be honest with you, I'm not afraid to use my credit cards on the Internet because I look at my credit card statement every single month. If there's right. anything I don't recognize, I know that I'm covered. So, you know, that gets back to the, the, the trust issue that I will use my credit card online and I trust that if anything's wrong, I'm not held responsible. So I think what you said is very true. The problem is, is when people use a debit card online or... I think the real problem is is all the stuff that we don't know about that's not transparent, like when these uh, spyware comes in or when there's something that we have inadvertently picked up. You know, I mean, sometimes I'll get a joke in the mail and and I, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I'm afraid to even open it. That's the stuff I think that's scarier for those of us who are online that want to be, you know, in the you know, communicating with new clients, communicating with old friends. That's the part. I mean, what can we do? Don't you think that maybe the Internet service providers should be the ones who are getting rid of all this spyware that they have the um, ability more than, than the consumers who use their ISPs? 
I do. I, I, think, I, I think ISPs have a huge role to play, not because they're necessarily responsible, but they, they're in a position. Yes. Uh, I mean, you, you really can't surf and you can't access email without, one, without an ISP, without some provider in the middle. So they're certainly in a position to, to protect. And they are certainly doing a lot. I mean, I know that uh, uh, the spam reaching my desktop now really has shrunk over the last couple of years. That you have the spam in my filters as, as bad as it ever was. So obviously they're, you know, the, the spam filtering, they're protecting me. But uh, the, the, the attackers are getting around these. And, you know, spam, certain types of spam is going down, but the, the attackers are getting more clever, um, a, a lot more phishing schemes, a lot more... Uh, convincing spam, a lot more personalized spam, getting a lot more spam that's either targeted at or, or, or sent in the name of businesses that you trust. Yes. You know, so the, the old emails that you get, that uh, the, um, just, just the, the email address that they're coming from is so crazy that you, you instinctively know, I don't know this organization or individual, I have no relationship with them, I'd, I'd best be cautious. But, you know, I, I get spam in all the time, and emails in all the time from very reputable-looking companies. And it's right, or the IRS. Or, yes, the IRS or the FDIC or Citibank. You know, these these are reputable. Everybody knows them, and they're thinking, oh, my goodness, you know, this is this real? I mean, I have Bank of America, and I've gotten some of these very authentic-looking ones from a Bank of America, but I don't, I don't ever trust Anything that comes like that, I immediately will call up my bank. If I think it even looks authentic, I'm going to call up and say, is there, you know, I got this email. Is it true? I don't think it is. And they go, you're absolutely right. It's not. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. I mean, on that anti-phishing uh, working group there, you know, we're trying to, you know, do something to... You can't really stop the phishing, though. You can only try and stop the people from reacting and getting caught, right? Well, I, I think in a way, though, the, the banks are their own worst enemies. You, you mentioned Bank of America. I would bank with Bank of America, and I'm constantly getting legitimate emails from them offering mortgages, uh, home equity, new credit cards, all, uh, all kinds of products, um, all with clickable links. Yes, So that's on the one the hand, mistake. I'm being educated not to click on these. Um, um, so, so the, the, I mean, the banks are, are 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 shooting themselves in both feet at the same time because at the one time they're they're encouraging this mistrust because I can't tell if it's a legitimate email and I don't have the time to find out, and I'm simply not buying the products. The yes. only interaction I have with them is to go online to check my account or maybe making a payment. But every time they send me a, a an offer of mortgage, no matter how good the offer is, I'm not interested. I'm, I I am interested, but at that time through that email. And with that organization, I'm not interested, and they're losing me as a customer. Yet I can't remember one time in the last five years that I've received a single email from my bank telling me about security. Yes, you're right. It's a, it's a, it's a tremendous channel of trust that's being underused as far as security is concerned and being uh, abused uh, by the, the, the marketing honchos, and they're really doing themselves more harm than good, but they can't get out of this frame set that every communication as often as possible, should be about selling something rather than building trust. Exactly. We're talking right now with Neil O'Farrell, who is the CEO of My Security Plan. You can go to mysecurityplan.com and learn more. But Neil is helping to educate us about security, and he is a cybersecurity expert. Neil, so tell me, what um, will cybersecurity, will cyberterrorism be the next big threat? It's it's hard to say. It's it's certainly from a national security point of view, it's it's not going to go away, and it's I think it is it really has yet to crest. And I think anything that affects the nation affects consumers individually, but obviously in in, in a different way. Um, I remember a, a few years ago being asked about this. I was working with some organizations, and there were a lot of salespeople coming in talking about the the grand event where the um, uh, terrorists uh, take control of a million computers and attack a dam and open up the dam and flood the flood the neighborhood and thousands right. of lives will be lost. And I, I thought it was such a ridiculous idea, but the same scenario in, in, in a slightly different way. Terrorists are certainly you would, could certainly be able to use the internet to, for example, in, in the case that we studied, um, hack into the computers of the local police department because they had no security on them find out who patrols the dam at what time, how long the shifts are, how often the uh, plane or helicopter flies over the dam to do an aerial inspection, 
uh, find out what times there are between shifts when there's going to be nobody there, uh, use Google Maps to find access to the dam, and uh, use that to drive a truck pump onto it. Mm. So it's a kind of cyber terrorism, but it's not this uh, movie-type uh, event where the computer is a weapon. The computer is simply the tool to make it easier to deliver a very uh, conventional weapon and launch the same kind of attack. And I think that's probably where we're seeing cyber terrorism. We're, uh, we're certainly seeing the Internet used to, um, to train. We're seeing it used uh, uh, to uh, um, communicate and to communicate securely using lots of good encryption. We're certainly using it for seeing it used for fundraising. Uh, we're using it for pro- we're seeing it used for propaganda, and all those are key components in terrorism. Yes, and we're and we're also seeing it as surveillance because you talk about that you can go on to Google or all of these websites where you can actually see the building and what's going on right now. I know it got pretty scary when we found our house, you know, where you could zoom in and see the whole backyard. And and so I think that we're also seeing surveillance. Like you said, it's a form of surveillance that we can see, you know, who's going to be watching the bridge, you know, uh, the Brooklyn Bridge or whatever it is, and what's going to be done. So it's it's a form of surveillance that's really not transparent. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a, a couple of months ago, I was able to t- I was able to find out that uh, uh, my parents uh, I- in Ireland had removed the the, the the shed in the back garden that I had uh, <laughs> that uh, you had r- built <laughs> raised a dog in, in, in <laughs> when I was a kid thirty years ago. And they didn't think you'd ever find out and feel bad. <laughs> exactly. They, they they thought they thought it was a, 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 a well kept secret. But I was able to maneuver my satellite over the backyard on a rainy Wednesday and and and, and discover the sneak. It's, <laughs> You know, it, it's, it's, there are precautions, and obviously if you try to Google uh, Google Maps or use Google Earth, uh, it, there are certain limitations on uh, uh, both the, the, the validity of the image or the timing of it, the, the, the currency of it, that it's, it, it may be an old image, and you, you can't, you're not going to be able to peep in a back window. But, you know, things may change. These are marketing companies who have to keep sure. uh, um, upping the ante to keep people driving back to those sites and using those tools. So very much, it's certainly a great way for a, a terrorist on the other side of the world to get intimately familiar with an, uh, a neighborhood in Ohio, in San Francisco, in San Diego, uh, places that they would not normally have access to. I know. I remember when there was something about that um, they had uh, uh, Barbara, uh, the singer, Barbara, the one you don't like, Lloyd. Oh, my mind just went. Barbara Streisand got married. And remember in Malibu, they had some, uh, the whole thing on the Internet? that people could see it on the Internet. And that was such an invasion of their privacy that this had been going on. And um, so I I think you're right. This is the the scary stuff that can go on that we don't even know, you know, what's going to happen. So who is behind the surge in cybercrime? You were starting to say it's, it's now, it's not just the college hackers and the hacker quackers or whatever you call them or the Kevin Mitnicks. It's now... What Eastern European uh, mafia or what is it? It's everybody, and 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 this this is what identity theft has shown us. It, it identity theft, as far as crimes goes, the great equalizer, uh, because in in the old days, and it's <clears throat> I guess you're going back to the the the, the, the mid 90s. Most of the attacks we're dealing with were really semi-clever techies uh, who know knew how to write a bit of code or modify a bit of code and launch these attacks for a bit of attention or. They were just bored that afternoon, but there was, there was very little profit motive because it was very hard to turn those attacks into money. Now we've seen two things. Um, there's an awful lot of money to be made, so um, uh, just about everybody imaginable is getting in on, uh, on the act. And it's extremely easy to commit these crimes, which means that people that you would not normally think would be criminals wouldn't even think of themselves as criminals are now getting into identity theft. Um, uh, Another aspect, too, is you don't have to be rich to be victimized. You don't have to have any assets because an identity theft, a social security number is really all they need. In fact, it's the holy grail. Yes. You don't have to be rich to have a social security number. Uh, but right, and even if you have crummy credit, you know, people say to me, oh, I'm not worried. No one would want my credit. This is what I hear when I do a speaking engagement or something. I go, well, wait a minute. How about if they could use your social security number to get a job? in another state, or they file a tax return in your name and they get the refund, or, you know, they, they apply for workers' comp, or they have something else, you know, some kind of disability that they can get from the government, or they get health care. I hear it 
from everyone. You know, there is so many other things that are identity theft that are not even related to credit. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's not about whether or not the, the thief can enrich themselves. They may not be able to, but they can certainly, they may not be able to enrich their lives, but they can certainly ruin yours. Yes. And, and, and you're right. And they can so, enrich their, their lives by getting a job. I mean, they can do it and they can get the money, but it isn't necessarily from getting your credit. And that's, everybody says, well, if you have credit monitoring and um, you put a credit freeze on your credit reports, then you're not going to become a victim of identity theft. And that clearly isn't the case. I get so upset when I see some of these like LifeLock or whatever else that come out and they put their social security number on TV and they said, I'm so safe that I won't become a victim of identity theft. It's it's crazy, it's, right? It's, it's bogus marketing. It's, it is. You know, it's w- deceptive. Wait, w- wait till the time that uh, you get notified by a detective or Secret Service or a state trooper that uh, you're under arrest or there are warrants out because you failed to appear because someone in another state used your social security number when they were arrested, when they were pulled over for a uh, for speeding or for committing a crime, they use your social security number. Try getting that out of the system. Try try uh, getting a job with that uh, a criminal re- record. You're right. It's 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 not just about the money. Right. You know, you you and I had uh, corresponded, and you one of the things that you said was that identity theft is not considered a, a cyber crime. Sure. Why would you say that? Well, the, 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 the traditional idea of a cybercrime is that the computer is used as the weapon. And, and in so many uh, um, uh, cases of identity theft, they, they are garden variety, sure. non tech thefts. That, right, uh, right. Uh, you know, a pickpocket, someone stealing uh, a, a, a wallet or a purse, someone, someone you trust, uh, an employee in a business, a, 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 a child, a spouse, a family member, friend, neighbor, you know, rifling through your financial information at home. Or stealing your mail. Stealing your mail, absolutely. I mean, that's that's a huge one, stealing your mail. Although I had just recently been at a uh, data uh, protection summit, and I think they said something like 45% of identity theft is from dirty insiders at businesses. You know, yeah. unscrupulous employees taking information. I know it's happened. I mean, we hear about it all the time. It happens from even the Social Security Administration and Experian and, you know, financial institutions and Bank of America. So you're right. That's that's really true. But I'll tell you something that I've been hearing a lot from, and maybe you have too. And this is a, this is a terrifying one. In fact, I interviewed one of our cyber identity theft victims on this show uh, at the end of last year. Claire Miller from New York City had uh, suddenly started getting all of these phone calls and men coming to her door uh, as a result of somebody going online into something like Match.com and putting in information about her, not only her name and her dress, but making it sound like she was really an easy mark, you know? Sure. And um, she had no idea that, that this person had done this. And basically... She's, you know, this is this was cyber identity theft. She found out these. She asked these men, "Why are you coming to my door? Why are you calling me?" They said, "Well, you put up this, uh, you know, this thing in in matched. I don't know if it was Match.com, but there were things like that that were a dating service online." And she said, "I never did this," and the police wouldn't help her. And until she called me, they wouldn't do anything. And then I got her not only on my radio show, but I called up my friends in the New York Times and Tom Zeller of the New York Times did a story on it. Suddenly, the police looked at it, but it was really um, a a tremendous ordeal to try and get law enforcement and the ISPs and the website people to help her to get this stuff taken down and to help her identify who it was. Yeah, what do you think about all that? It's, 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 it's just one of the many tentacles of identity theft. I mean, that's kind of identity impersonation. It's an identity slander, and it can be someone simply with a, a, a twisted sense of humor or with some kind of um, grudge against you. Absolutely, they can take your information, they can create a, a personality, they can put it up on as many sites as they want, whether it's a Match.com or, or, or MySpace. Um, Facebook, whatever, yeah. Yeah, and they can not only trash your reputation, but they can steal your, your personal sense of security in an instant. I mean, And it's not transparent, so you don't know who it is. And to try and find out who it is is, you know, overwhelming. 
Yeah, you, you you don't have that satisfaction of justice. I mean, it's 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 limited satisfaction for the pain you go through. But uh, the internet is so anonymous; it's not just easy for people to steal your information. It's very easy for them to repost it, uh, to put it in places it shouldn't be, or, or or to phrase it in ways to simply lie about you. I mean, Wikipedia is a perfect example of that. It's a it's a very well policed um, uh, uh, resource, and it's uh, uh, many millions of users contributed to it, but. Um, you can go onto your own bio if it's up there, or you can put up your own bio and you can call yourself an astronaut. <laughs> Unless somebody challenges it, and simply, similarly, you could call yourself a criminal or a, a you know a, a child molester. It it really um, the, there's the, the the flow of information goes in a lot of ways you might not think, and it's not just all about theft. It I I always laugh when I think of that cartoon that was in the New York. Uh, the New Yorker, and it has the two dogs sitting at a computer, and one dog says to the other, "On the internet, nobody knows you're a dog," <laughs> and it's and it's true. They don't know who you are, and you know we're we're also getting you know I mean I think the scariest part is for kids, because you get cyberbullying, which is another form of identity theft, where someone will go online and they'll say things that would embarrass that person or put up pictures that make them look like they're naked. They'll put, you know, with Adobe, they can put a head on another body. And we're getting um, a lot of that where there's a cyber uh, identity theft that, that the schools are having to take uh, a great deal of problems with. Down here in Orange County, we had something like that. What do you think about kids and the Internet and all this online stuff? That, that, that's such a... Um a minefield and a nightmare. I mean, the the people who have the greatest control over the kids who are doing it and the kids who are having it done to them have the least awareness about the damage and the harm that it can do, and they they have the least knowledge of the repercussions. Uh, and the parents who have the ultimate duty, I think, and, 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 and to some extent, or to a great extent, the schools, have the most powerless because it used to be, well, you know, you, 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 take, you, you control access to computer and the Internet in the home. The computer must be in a public publicly accessible place you put in filtering monitoring uh, now kids have got so much access to the internet from places outside the home you have absolutely no idea what they're doing what they're saying and what's being said about them i mean even on their cell phone right absolutely i mean the, I mean, cell, phone, the, the cell phone is the last thing it's, it, it is is a phone i mean it's, <laughs> a, it's, it's a very powerful computer it's a video camera it's, it's a, an ipad it's a camera. <laughs> absolutely so it's you know the the, thr- the thrill that kids get uh, in uh, taking photos of other kids doing things that they shouldn't, maybe drinking, maybe partying, maybe driving too fast, posting those on the Internet or sending them to their parents or sending them to their friends. You can ruin a child's reputation very, very quickly. You don't even have to go to that extent. Simply create a place on MySpace and, and, uh, and, and uh, tell lies. And then how about 20 years from now when that doesn't go away? Yeah, this is the thing. The, 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 uh, the, the, there is no uh, kill switch on the Internet. You can't you can simply say, okay, remove, remove all those offending documents or remove those lies about me. Uh, in 10 or 20 years' time, that information will still be out there, and you'll still be fighting it. You'll still be trying to prove your case. And it's, a, it's the hardest thing is, is to prove something that was said about you years ago was not true. So, Neil, Lloyd says we only have a, a couple minutes here. So now that we're all depressed here, yeah, <laughs> we're looking at you as our, you know, our great hope of the future <laughs> to save us because you're one of the top 20 security people in the world. No pressure. Okay. <laughs> what? Just leave us with, is there anything positive you can leave us with? Well, in, in, in the words of a famous virus author about 15 years ago, I think it was Dark Avenger from Bulgaria, he was interviewed, and he said, the first law of computer security, don't own a computer. <laughs> Second law of computer security, if you do own a computer, never turn it on. And, and the problem was, it, no, despite how smart he was, he was wrong, because you don't have to own a computer to be a victim of exactly. cyber. Exactly. Right? You're victimized exactly. in so many ways. I think two things. <clears throat> Number one, um, uh, it's okay to be paranoid because you're right, they are out to get you. Uh, number two, personal security planning. <clears throat> it's, it, it, it sounds, you know, a little bit crazy, but it's, it's actually very simple. It's simply making, ma- making a, a commitment that you will take security much more personally, that you won't uh, simply rely on other people, whether it's your ISP or your bank or your credit card company, to protect you. And simply build a checklist of all the things that, you, um, that make you vulnerable, whether it's uh, how you monitor your credit, how you use the computer, um, 
how you manage your financial documents around your home, or how you use the internet and email, uh, and just keep reminding yourself, keep the checklist by your computer or something. And I found that's probably the easiest way because simply having a checklist on your computer, if, if simply by the, the, the act of seeing it reminds you, oh, I must think about security. That's right. You know, I have my book, Safeguard Your Identity, which is a privacy audit, just like what you're telling. And I tell people, keep it in your bathroom. <laughs> And write off what you did, you know, and be proud of yourself. Check off each of the things that you did. But Lloyd is telling me that it is time to go. We have to have you on again because we have so much more to talk about, Neil. You've been just a delight to have on, and I I absolutely adore that accent. Thank you. Thank you very much. The accent comes easy, but the security expertise took a quarter of a century. (laughs) Well, we're going to get you on to tell us more about how we can positively protect ourselves. So we will talk to you again soon. Thank you so much. My my pleasure, Mary. Great to talk to you. Yes, you've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I am Mari, your host, and Lloyd is my a wonderful engineer. This is Privacy Piracy. Join us every week at 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. right here Wednesdays. Also, please look at our previous guests and listen to their podcasts. And I mean, you can download those podcasts and you can also listen right there at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Thank you and hope you'll join us next week. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.